0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Amy Knight.
1: Hey, hey, from Nashville.
0: I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Ethan Brown. Ethan, do you want to say hello? Hi, everyone.
2: Uh, Now, can you give us just a brief introduction to who you are? Sure. Uh, Right now, I'm the technology director at a small software company. Uh, We're actually headquartered in California, but I'm in Portland, Oregon. And we write software to facilitate um, a... (laughs) We, We sort of have a marketing problem. and It's very hard to explain what we do. But what my company as a whole does is help large, usually public organizations... Uh, make projects more effective, so the kind of work we do is rehabilitations of bridges and uh embassy retrofits and large construction pro- projects and highway retrofits and so there's a lot there's a lot that goes into a lot of engineering a lot of civil planning a lot of government work and getting people to sort of come together and you know, get the most value out of the project, make sure the projects go smoothly is really difficult. And there's a methodology called value engineering that we use to help these public, uh, usually public agencies improve value on their projects. And so the engineering team is writing software that helps facilitate that whole process. So I know that's that's very nebulous, you know, to people who not not in in, uh, pub, in, in the public sector, it's, it's kind of hard to describe what we do. So... I've been working on the elevator pitch. It's not done yet, as you can tell. Well,
0: that's fine. I mean, it's interesting to see how software is being used, especially in areas like, you know, how, how do we manage projects on bridges and stuff? But, uh, sure. You know, at the same time, you know, we're here to talk about the software and not necessarily about the application. So absolutely. Anyway, we ran across this article and this is something I get asked about a fair bit. Now this was written back at the beginning of the year, but I, I think it's still relevant, and I'm. Curious to dive into what you're looking at as we're kind of coming around mid-year and starting to look at, okay, what do we have to know for 2019? You wrote this article, JavaScript 2018, things you need to know and a few you can skip. Or I guess you didn't write it, but you were the, yeah, I was interviewed. the source behind
2: it. I, yeah. I was interviewed by it. Uh, and it was based on a talk I gave at Node Interactive last year. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll I'll start off by saying what's really funny to me about doing this podcast now is how quickly things change. One of the things that I originally had talked about that you know I, I didn't think was something that people needed to know right now is symbols in JavaScript, because you know I had I had played around with using them in some projects uh, maybe a couple of years ago. And I just had a lot of problems with serialization and bundling and library incompatibilities. And I thought to myself, well, you know, for the for the benefit you get, I don't think that the troubles are worth it. So I was saying, you know, don't think about symbols now. And then just a couple of months ago, a uh, open source project that we rely on for our software called AutoMerge, someone submitted a PR and said, hey, you know, I think symbols would really is really what we should be using here. And so I piped up and I said, hey, you know, I, you know, I've had all kinds of problems integrating symbols into other projects. And they said, what are you crazy? Symbols work just fine. And so already I'm, I'm seeing, you know, in, the, in such a short amount of time, things that I was sort of derating uh, being quite useful these days.
3: Right. So I totally know what symbols are. But there may be people that don't, so maybe for them, not for me, but for them, you could, no, I'm just kidding. I really actually would love
1: it. The only ones I've used are in Ruby, so are they, like, comparable to that? Uh,
2: You know, it's been so long since I've done Ruby, I could not even comment on that, but I'll tell you what they are, and then you can tell me. Uh, Symbols are basically uh, immutable... Uh, lexical symbols, so you know uh, you might use them in place of enums or in place of consts, and they're uh, the 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 compiler enforces their uniqueness within uh, a single javascript run runtime environment. so uh, you know like let let's say you're building a form and you have gender on us, so you have male, female and other, and you might create a symbol for. Gender male, gender female, gender other, and the language will enforce that you're using, uh, you know, that that symbol doesn't take on another value as opposed to saying using a string constant. That's pretty close. And that's, that's one example of how they're
0: used in Ruby as well. Yep.
1: It has also been forever since I've done Ruby. So I had to Google that really quickly. <laughs> I haven't used them in JavaScript yet. I knew that they were coming, but, um, Practically speaking, can you give an like a practical example of when you used them recently
2: so i I can talk uh, specifically about the uh, when they were used in the auto merge project and i'm I'm not sure that has been merged into master yet, so I'm not sure it's available in mainline auto merge uh, but I'll give you a quick background on Auto merge too because I think this is a great project, and we're actually basing most of our application architecture on it so I want to give a little shout out to those guys. Um, Martin Klepperman. um, He's in the UK, and this comes out of uh, some graduate research work he did on conflict-free, shoot, now I'm going to forget the acronym, CRDT, conflict-free resolution data types. And basically, it's about merging data from multiple sources in a consistent and coherent way. So think about Google Docs, for example, you have a bunch of people editing it at the same time, and how do you how do you keep those changes consistent? And so, CRDTs is is a great way to manage that, and AutoMerge is a JavaScript library to handle CRDTs. Uh, So, long
3: talking about that, and I'm thinking in my mind diamonds, like. Conflict-free diamonds and conflict diamonds, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> How <is> this? Uh, <laughs> no, this, this, this is
2: on. Uh, this is on the um the data conflict side, not the human conflict side. Thank, thankfully. <laughs> Thankf- thankfully. <laughs> um. So, anyway, uh, ba- back to the the subject at hand, symbols. Um, under the hood, auto merge uses uh, immutable.js to enforce immutability because a, a big principle of CRDTs is the at at the end of the day, you get an immutable object. Uh, otherwise, it's really difficult to, to uh, synchronize changes. So, um, you know, wh- what you get is an object with a bunch of properties. And depending on how you're using it, for example, if you're trying to serialize it, you might iterate over the properties and try to write it to a database or something like that. And when the, when the project first started, most of the sort of control variables were prefixed with an underscore. So there was like a underscore object ID and under, underscore conflict list. And one of the rules of the library was that you can't use properties to start with an underscore, which is kind of a hassle. A lot of people use properties that start with an under, underscore to sort of locally indicate, you know, reserved uh, reserved property names. So this was sort of a point of contention with a lot of people who use the library, and I was one of them. And so my first take on it was, well, let's make those properties immutable so that, you know, when we iterate over it or we try to serialize it, we we don't, you know, get those properties that are really part of the auto-merge implementation into our data stores where it's not relevant. Um, And so that happened. And then this other person, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. I'd have to go and look up. He came along and he said, hey, you know what we should actually do is we should be using symbols for this. And so here's another interesting aspect of symbols in JavaScript. In an object, you know, as we know, the, the keys to properties in an object has to be strings, but with the introduction of, of symbols, they can be strings or symbols. So unlike, say, a map, you know, the, the map and uh, weak map objects that were introduced in ES 2016 where you can have any data type is the key. Traditional JavaScript objects, you know, regular objects. We've only been able to use strings, but now we can use symbols. And the really interesting thing about that is you can effectively implement data hiding. So if you have a symbol and you set a property in an object using that symbol and you have a client that's using that object and they don't have access to your symbol because of the unique nature of symbols, they effectively have no way of accessing that property. So, you know, (laughs) in a weird sort of way, we're getting back to, you know, some of the data hiding that object-oriented programming in, you know, more traditional OOP languages has had available forever in sort of a, you know, very typical JavaScript way. Um, Anyway, long story short, AutoMerge said, hey, that'd be a great idea. That way we can take all of these you know, sort of internal bookkeeping properties that we're using in our objects and hide them and make it so the client can't see them by not exposing the symbols. And it turned out to work great. So that's a fantastic use. And before I move on, I'll also point out that this is also how JavaScript uh, itself as a language handles enumeration. So innumerable properties have a generator That I can't remember the exact name, but basically they have a symbol property that specifies what the the generator is. So they're sort of eating their own dog food in the symbol property department.
1: Cool. Thanks for that example.
2: Sure thing.
0: Now, I kind of want to dive into, you know, first of all, you put out a list, you know, this is what you should know or should learn in 2018. I mean, where does this come from? Is this just what people are talking about where you hear them or... (laughs)
2: well you know i'll I'll admit to you know obvious myopia uh you know i i manage a team of engineers and i'm working on javascript projects so a part of it is you know this is what we're doing and I realize that's that's a local example but i try to you know I, I read a lot i read a lot of blogs i try to keep up with podcasts and i listen to what people are using or not using so you know I, I'm not going to pretend i'm all knowing, obviously, but um, I, I do like, I do hope that I'm staying on top of what I hear people talking about in the JavaScript ecosystem. And my involvement in, in sort of the JavaScript community waxes and wanes depending on how busy I get at work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, depending on, on when you ask me, I might have my finger on the pulse of JavaScript and I might not.
0: <laughs> That's fair. I mean, most of these are things that people are at least talking about. So, yeah, let, let's just jump in on some of these. One sure. one that I found slightly surprising. I mean, people are talking about WebAssembly, but I'm not aware of anyone like really deeply using WebAssembly.
1: Yeah, and we talked about this before a couple episodes back, and it, I thought kind of our takeaway was like the everyday developer probably wouldn't use it. So I was curious to see that being on the list. Why?
2: That's a great question. And I don't know that I have a great answer for that. The reason I originally put that on the list, and I may have been bitten by the hype bug, is I just heard so <laughs> many, you know, I heard so many people talking about it, and they're like, oh my God, WebAssembly is gonna, you know, change the way we write software on the web. And I think looking back, what I was what I was really hearing is sort of a the echoes of the JavaScript haters, because you know JavaScript has just gone under through such a, a renaissance. You know, it used to be the language everyone loved to hate on, mostly before ES6, and then you know, along with ES6 and Node and React, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of got got on board and said, "Hey, actually, JavaScript's a pretty a neat language. I really like it." Uh, but there's still a lot of people I think who are are a little mm-hmm. poisoned by that, and so I think why people were excited about WebAssembly was they were thinking, you know, oh my God, I can, you know, program C++ and have it compiled JavaScript or, you know, Ruby or, you know, whatever. Um, and you're right. I don't, I don't know the, uh, I, I, think, I think the excitement has sort of died down. I haven't heard people talking uh, too much about it lately. So if I were writing that, uh, if I were telling that story today, I would not put that on the list.
3: Would you put uh, blockchain on there just out of curiosity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, God. Oh,
3: I know, right? Blockchain and AI. Come on. <laughs> well, uh, when speaking of WebAssembly specifically, I think it's one of those topics you absolutely should be aware of because, uh, as was, I, I, I don't know, like Chuck was saying, I don't know that there's much where your typical Website web application programmer is going to leverage WebAssembly directly, but it's a very interesting tool. And I think that we'll be seeing more and more tools taking advantage of WebAssembly in the future. It's very promising, but right now it's just leveraged very, very little. And so that's browser support. And so that's other issues. But I think in the future, we're going to see WebAssembly. I think it's going to be aware of. Uh, I just can't imagine something um, functional I would do with it. So yeah,
2: I, I agree with that assessment. And, you know, like I said, I I haven't looked at it or played with it since I gave that talk. So
3: um, That makes me think of something else with the exclusion, obviously, of blockchain. Would you, if you wrote this today, would you put machine learning on there?
2: Yes and no. Maybe, maybe I guess, is the answer. And, and, and let me... <laughs> D- dive into that explanation a little bit, so to me, me- machine learning is not a particular language feature it 's more of a uh, you know an algorithm or a set of principles to solve certain types of problems and I think it is more relevant to JavaScript now because i 'm sure you all have heard that TensorFlow was recently uh, released uh, for JavaScript right. uh, or at least a client API so now I think you know the, the, the eight hundred pound machine learning gorilla is now a lot easier to use in JavaScript. And so I think we are going to see an acceleration of people doing AI and machine learning, uh, using JavaScript as as at least as the client interface. You know, we we all know JavaScript is, you know, probably not the most appropriate language if you want to do CPU bound stuff. So you know, you probably want to ship that actual computation work off to a more appropriate core or server or service. Right. The, act- the actual interface, I, I think JavaScript to be a fantastic language for doing that in.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. Pretty-
2: It'll definitely be
0: interesting to see where it goes. One other thing, just back to WebAssembly, is I don't think you were wrong. I think you were early. And the reason that I think that is because, you know, again, going back to either the JavaScript haters or just the future of JavaScript. WebAssembly isn't just designed to be a common compiler target for JavaScript and for other languages. It's also designed to be highly optimized when the browsers do implement it. And so it's not just going to be then this thing out there that, oh, now my Ruby or C++, C++ <laughs> or C Sharp or whatever compiles to it, and I can finally write real programming, quote unquote, onto the web, right? It's also going to be my JavaScript. I'm writing my JavaScript and I'm going to run it through this compiler that compiles it to WebAssembly. And it's going to be highly performant because both the browser and the compiler are optimized to give me the best throughput on the stuff that I wrote.
2: Right. Well said. and I didn't really highlight that aspect of it. I guess... Part of why that feels a little less re- less relevant to me personally is when I think about that, I think about things like games, and I'm not really in the in the game space. Uh, you know, most of the most of the work that I de- do these days, there's definitely some algorithmic complexity and there's some business rule complexity, but we're hardly taxing the computational capabilities of the devices we're running on. So uh, I'm sure the performance benefits are going to be really relevant to some people, but not to me. So much personally,
3: I just know I need to buy a bigger video card so I can do some more Bitcoin mining <laughs>
0: yeah i, I was I, I would beg to differ a little bit on that point as well. It depends on how nice your cell phone is, sure, one hundred percent agreed so but but it is it is interesting, especially in the direction we're heading, but yeah, I mean, the next two that you had on here, I was like, oh yeah, you know if if you're not up on these at this point, you're almost falling behind, and that was functional programming and immutability. Which sort of have gone hand in hand, as well as the one-way data binding, which we see a lot in kind of the reactive frameworks.
3: Yeah, so, um, I, yeah. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on those two. Uh, look, can we start with just functional programming, and, and then we can move on to immutability afterwards? Sure. So,
2: I have a, a lot of thoughts on functional programming, and sometimes they're a little, a little mixed. You know, I, I was exposed to functional programming. Uh, in the late 90s when I was doing my computer science undergraduate. And, uh, you know, that had been around for 20, 30 years by then. So, you know, these ideas are are not new. It's interesting to me that they're finally taking purchase and becoming a little vogue. And I really do credit JavaScript with bringing functional programming techniques to the masses. Certainly, it's not the first language to be multi-paradigm or allow you to program in functional language. But it's the first language that i really see the masses sort of cottoning onto it and the hipsters being like oh yeah functional programming that's where it's at you know um 10 years ago you you didn't see that um it was mostly relegated to sort of niche languages and academia um so i i think that's that's great for the programming community in general you know um and i i guess i would liken it to the way that Uh, Ruby on Rails really changed the way we do web development with, you know, really strong tooling. And, you know, I'm I'm not a big Ruby person. It was never really my favorite language, but I can absolutely um, appreciate what it did for the discipline of web programming. And I see a similar thing happening with JavaScript introducing functional programming to a, a brand new generation of programmers. Now, that said... I do think that JavaScript is suddenly of a gateway drug and that it is multi-paradigm. And in a lot of ways, it especially if you're a little older like I am, it is hard to get out of the imperative mindset because in, in a lot of ways, it is very natural. You think, you know, you're, you're writing a program to do something. We sort of decompose things into steps. And it is a shift in thinking to instead decompose them into essentially function call stacks. And I do like that, that, that you can do it both ways. And I guess I've been wondering lately if the the optimal le- language or approach or discipline, if you will, is a hybrid of functional and imperative, but using each where they most make sense instead of like wholesale going to a language like Elm, which don't get me wrong, I love Elm. Uh, you know, if, if I could switch everything I do to Elm, I probably would. But
3: I think, you know, what if you... What I if think you... that's a common uh, feeling with a lot of people <laughs> that dabble with Elm. It's yeah. like, this is so awesome, but I can't use it uh, the way that it is because it can only be pieces and it doesn't work well as a piece. I need it to be everything. But if I could do everything that I want to do with Elm, I would love it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah,
1: I, I would agree with what you're saying because I think any time that you can kind of understand the trade-offs of something and use the right tool for the job at the time that's when you're going to get the most value yeah
3: I agree with that but can I uh, I'd like to uh, throw out a little uh, counter argument here just to we just to try to uh,
1: stir the pot a little
3: stir the pot a little yeah just <laughs> a
1: little.
3: we don't have a uh, AG on so we can't really get this pot stirred <laughs> <laughs> let's take functional programming now I'm just going to take the side of somebody who doesn't like functional programming right and I'm going to use an example. Go uh, in. <laughs> <laughs> i mean, going use an example here. Data structures and algorithms are constantly being touted as, hey, these are the kinds of things you should learn. You go get a CS degree, you learn this stuff. So people that don't get a classic CS degree, if you do a different degree or you don't get a degree, hey, this is something you should definitely learn. Uh, I did not get a degree. I programmed for like 15-ish plus years before I finally decided to sit down and learn data structures and algorithms. And in that time... I maybe could have leveraged that knowledge three, four, five times in that 15 years. And when I say times, I mean like literally like for an hour or two, right? In that time frame. And then I learned them. I spent like a ton of time learning them and 300, 400 hours studying data and algorithms. And then five years, seven years down the road, I think I've used them about twice, right? That like the specific knowledge, the other stuff that you just kind of like, hey, this is slower than this and that sort of thing. But I mean, really like, learning data structures and algorithms. So I've heard some similar things on functional programming that it's like, hey, everybody that does, gets into it says it's great, but all the people who don't get into it or who dabble in it and just find it to be annoying comes about thinking, you know what, it's just more obscure syntax. And boy, well, the, the last thing I want to do is write my JavaScript to make it look like Lisp. So can you uh, maybe like counter-argue argue that?
2: Sure. And, you know, honestly, I don't disagree with you, or at least uh, there's some things in what you said that I'm, I'm going to agree with and some things I'm going to disagree with. Um, so let me start with data structures. I feel like I use data structures and algorithms every day, and maybe it's some like very common ones, but I do think the computer science background helps a lot of uh, just, for example tree like structures and tree algorithms tree traversal is something you know it's if if i don't do it with every week it's weird um you know either i have you know I, i'm putting stuff in a tree on an actual ui and i need to traverse that to get to something or uh you, you know i'm dealing with a difficult git branch merge and you know th- there's always something that it, it, Let's, let me put it this way. If there were one data structure, I would say you should learn if you want to write on the web, it would be trees. I also, I also think stacks and queues are important. So I, th- I think those concepts are important. And I guess my counter argument would be, you, you probably don't need to spend 300, 400 hours learning them. Maybe you just need a condensed guide of like, hey, here are the most important and relevant ones. And as far as algorithms go, you know, I would say that you know, again, there are probably a handful of al- algorithms that you should probably know and be able to bust out by heart. Tree traversal is a great example. Don't bother memorizing sort algorithms because someone has written it better than you have. You know, so I think you like, so <laughs> you, you can like pick and choose uh, what's important to you and what's not. Um, and with functional programming, I, I'm more inclined to agree with you. I think if you if you really go down the rabbit hole and you really drink the Kool-Aid, yeah, your your programs can start to look like Lisp and it can start to be mind-bendingly abstract and even obtuse, in, in my opinion. And that's why I was suggesting that maybe the the ideal mix is is something in between, but a little more formalized. And what, what I mean by that is you know, I manage a team of, of engineers, and most of them are more junior than I am. I actually just hired a senior engineer, so it'll, it'll be nice to have someone on my team who uh, can help me with the, the heavy lifting. But, but mostly it's people I'm uh, at some level mentoring. And if I could turn on a switch, and, you know, maybe the project that allows me to do that is out there somewhere, to say, all f- all functions must be pure, I totally would. So that aspect of functional programming, where you know there are no side effects, you know everything is based on the argument. You put the arguments in, you get a consistent argument out. That I would absolutely do. I would get rid of methods. You know, and so that aspect of functional programming, I think, is gold. It's, it helps for testing. It helps uh, make things more easily decomposable. It helps people write better code, and it helps me look at it and say, "Oh yeah, this this function is going to work." Uh, In any situation, because I can see everything that's going on instead of like dealing with all these side effects, what I would back away from in the functional programming department is that you know if I have an algorithm that that takes ten steps, why can't I just write the ten steps in a row? As long as the function itself returns, as long as the function itself is pure, I don't mind saying step one, step two, step three, step four. That's fine.
0: This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... Well, and I think I think that's the discussion again, right? Is that mm-hmm. um, a lot of the people that I hear talking about functional programming, they either talk about why they hate it, and you know, so it is these aspects of Lisps and things like that. You know, closure, closure script. Um, you know, I I like these aspects of Elm, but I didn't like you know the syntax or whatever. And then the other end of things, where yeah, people just go all the way down, and you know, it's it's like, well, you have to do it this way. And if we're if we're really having a real conversation about it, it's like, look, in my day-to-day life, what aspects of functional program do I really care about, right? And what aspects do I not care about? What things are going to pay off for me and which ones aren't? And sure, there's a certain level of experimentation I think you have to do to figure that out for you and the way that you code. But at the same time, I mean, for a lot of the easy wins, it's already been discussed, right? And so you're talking about pure functions with no side effects and... Right. I can't remember all the principles that go in behind it, but you know you're looking at some some real trade offs here, and so it's like, okay, if your code is complicated in this way, then writing purely functional programming is going to you know give you something that you know decomplicates some of that stuff, but you have to approach it in a different way and and so yeah, I mean that's the thing that I like about the idea of you know things you should know in twenty eighteen is it's not you have to go all the way down the path it's Hey, get to know this this year, and if you dig in a little bit, you know you spend a, a reasonable number of hours um, or build a project or two using functional programming concepts. Then you can say, okay, this really simplified things in this way, but I really didn't like this particular aspect of it. And you can you can make a call on your own on your own projects.
2: Yeah, I agree with that assessment. It it really is about you know, having the tools in your toolbox. And I think some of the functional programming tools are really good. And then some of them, you know, maybe they'd be really good if you really invested them. I'm thinking about things like, you know, uh, languages with natural occurring and monads, you know, maybe if you really bought into that and everyone on your team was conversant in that way of thinking, it would work out great, but it's such a high bar uh, to hurdle, I think, with most programmers.
3: So I want to jump back to like your whole answer to the question. I was really on board with everything you said right up until you mentioned get merged conflicts that my brain sort of screamed and hid inside of my head. (laughs) (laughs) Like when it comes to functional programming, I do find that there's a lot of promise in there. And I do think that as developers, we are being, if nothing else, I think we're being dragged kicking and and screaming along the functional programming paradigm because we're seeing it crop up in a lot more places. And I'm sure we can Discuss as we discuss immutability and all the places where immutability is actually starting to uh, pop up, like uh, state management in our frameworks, the Flux patterns, and all their derivatives that are coming out for all the frameworks. These uh, have aspects of functional programming along uh, that go along with them, and um, RxJS is yet another example of that. Um, that we're starting to see functional programming just show up in places where we may not realize it. And to compare back to my ori- original example, right, of data structures and algorithms, I get it was somewhat of a misrepresentation to say, like, I didn't use a single data structure or algorithm. Obviously, if you use an array, you really, it's you got to have a hard time programming without using a, a data structure, right? Sure. But I sort of, I found that I picked up, like, the two or three things I ca- kind of needed to know about data structures and algorithms. just. As I was working along with jobs, like I learned what a binary search was fairly quickly, fairly early on. And then I think I implemented that a couple of times by hand for various reasons uh, where it wasn't the whatever I was searching through didn't already have that, uh, didn't, it didn't already exist. And whatever I was utilizing or again, tree traversal, right? Like, like you said, I think it's hard to get too far along in programming before encountering a tree at some point and needing to traverse it. And so... Uh, oftentimes those algorithms in some ways are sort of self-discovering too Um, so I think in the same thing we're and, and I guess as I was doing I was as I was programming along in my junior years I was also just encountering seniors who were talking to me about oh well you know we got to use an index on this database table so that we get a binary search. And I'm like, well, what's a binary search? Then somebody explains it to me. and so I'm like, oh, okay, now, now I just sort of get it uh, and treat traversal the same way. So I think we're seeing a lot of the same stuff with functional programming as these tools come out more and more that we utilize that have these paradigms with them. That's not to be said that there really isn't a lot to be benefited from by taking a serious study of functional programming. We had... um kyle simpson that's his name right getify Mm -hmm. yeah on and he talked about his functional programming book and so i i actually immediately went out and bought it and i really like his approach because he kind of starts off for the front in this beginning where he shows two algorithms one written imperatively one written functionally in javascript and says uh contrast them and i look at that i'm like yeah the imperative one's definitely better and more readable and he says by the end you'll be able to read you know this book you'll be able to read the second one as fluently and as easily as you can read the first one and um, then you can obviously, again, as we discussed, decide at the time that you want to do something, is this the right tool to use or is it not? Is it not? And in today's world, we might take a choice a lot of times to say, well, I'm going to use imperative because I'm working with other developers who may not be as comfortable with functional, but those times uh, certainly can be changing.
1: Well, I just also too, I mean, if you ever are feeling super opposed to something Make sure that you've given it a fair shot before you shoot it down. Because I tend to see a lot of the people that are opposed to it haven't really given it a try yet. So try to keep I, an open mind.
3: That's I, the only reason I keep seeing DC movies. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that's a. I've, that,
0: I've been debating on saying this, and I'm just going to share it, and then you can go ahead, Ethan but uh, a lot of the reaction that I see to things like functional programming and immutability are for the same reasons that I see people react to things like react and view. And that is, is that they're skeptical of the, of the hype cycle. And so they don't try it. It doesn't fit into my current paradigm and it's highly hyped. And so I don't know if it has real value or if it's just super popular for the next few months.
1: That's why I like Kyle Simpson's approach. Cause he's like, it's a very yeah. practical approach. And I mean, I would love for someone to find me and point out a way where not using pure functions is going to make your code more testable because <laughs> it's just, I feel like it helps. I mean, that's just a super easy thing you can do without, you know, going all in. That's yeah. going to make your code a lot easier to maintain, a lot easier to read, way more testable, composable. And
2: I'll shut up there <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely agree Amy and I, I love what you had to say about uh people giving things a fair shake, and it really reminds me of probably one of the bigger professional mistakes I've made. uh This was going back about three years, and you know react was you know obviously starting to gain popularity at that time. And I had a couple of younger programmers on my staff. I was at a different company and they kept badgering me like, oh man, you got to try this React thing. It's really good. And I tried it and I was like, oh, mixing HTML and JavaScript, that's just gross. Why would you do that? And I just sort of like, dis- you know, I said, no, I, I don't really want to do that. Let's not do that. And everyone went on board because I was in charge and, you know, I wasn't trying to be a jerk about it, but you know, at some point I did have to make technical decisions. And then uh, a friend of mine uh, said something that turned out to be very pivotal for me. He said, I I absolutely get it with react. You have to try it three times and give up three times before you get it. And whether that stuck in my head and it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy or whether that's an actual, like, incredible bit of wisdom. That's exactly what happened. I tried like three little pet projects and every time I ended up, I was like, Oh, this is horrible. Why would anyone write software like this? And I gave up. And then that third time it clicked. And the reason I say this was one of my bigger professional mistakes is once I saw how good it was and how how the team really wanted to do it and how it would work best for them, we ended up rewriting probably 80,000 lines of... We were using Vue. You know, we we had decided to go with Vue instead of React because it is much more familiar to an old dog like me. Um, and so we ended up... You know, I, I cost us 80,000 lines of fo- code and heaven knows how many man hours just because I wasn't you know, keeping an open mind and, and trying hard enough to understand a new concept on the block.
3: Did you pay your employer back for those uh, lost um, all that lost money?
2: Fortunately, it does not work that way. <laughs> <laughs> I think if we're all being honest, we
0: could all say that about something we've done. <laughs> Uh, sure. <laughs> can,
3: I, can I diverge into a personal story here? I actually have an experience where it was very direct. I wrote a bug that uh, way back in the day before the internet was really much of a thing. It was dialing this place and downloading data in a loop. And we got charged significantly. And overnight, it racked up like a $1,500 bill, which in the late 90s was more than it's, it is today. But certainly to my employer, it was a huge amount. And boy, were they in a in a big tizzy over that.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. We've all got stories like that, I think. Yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, I identified a lot with what the uh, example you are talking about with when I first learned automated testing, right? I had a lot of resistance. No, well, I wouldn't say a lot of resistance, but I had some resistance to it when I first learned about it. And then, but we just did it as a team, so I was forced to. That first time, the, an automated test saved me like three hours, and it turned a three-hour task into like a 20-second task. It was like, oh, my gosh, what have I been missing Any time, any attitude that I had different than this is the best thing since sliced bread was completely
2: ridiculous.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, automated testing is another great example because here's my pitch for automated testing. If someone asked me, why, why should you do automated testing? It's if I get a new developer on a project and I can sit them down and there's a comprehensive suite of automated tests it makes them feel so much more comfortable to get in there and do what they have to do, which is experiment. You, you have to try things. You have to break things. You have to be not afraid of failing. And automated tests really provide that safety net. So that at the end of the day, you're like, okay, I tried a bunch of things. And, you know, I'm, I'm confident that this is not going to break anything else because it passed all the tests.
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm all right let's we didn 't have we, we haven 't really moved on to immutable immutability no, right let 's move on to immutability we've got to get moving here we 're going to be on the podcast for four and a half hours
2: <laughs> uh, all right well i will uh, i 'll jump in and start um, so i resisted you know immu- immutable is another uh, thing that I resisted at first, and this one didn 't take me as long to to realize the benefits of and part of it is that confidence you get if if all of your data structures are immutable, it makes you a little more confident to be like, "Oh, I'm going to try this thing," because I know I can't mess things up too badly because I'm just creating a new object. It's you know variation on the old object. Um, and you know my my other concern, of course, was was related to performance. I thought. You know, is this going to be efficient with respect to memory? Is this going to be efficient with respect to uh, processing? And, you know, after I've, now that I've done it for a while, I realize that JavaScript is pretty well tuned to object comparison and and linking. So I, I think it may not be efficient in every language, but it's certainly efficient in JavaScript the the one downside the big downside i think that still exists for immutable that still bothers me is that it is syntactically awkward in javascript you know like god bless immutable.js for giving us all of these you know handy helper functions but it's still not as natural as using javascript's built-in syntax to do it and so you know, in our reducers, in our project, you know, sometimes we have these reducers that's just this, you know, snarl of curly braces and object spreads and splices. Um, and again, I'll I'll give another pitch for auto merge. Uh, one of the uh, the interface that auto merge gives you basically is you take an immutable auto merge object and you say hey I want to make some changes on this and it gives you a function or you give it a function rather and it gives you a mutable copy of that object and you can do all the normal mutable stuff you can it records all those changes and figures out how to do those immutable in an immutable way and then gives you the object back and since we switched over to doing that it really became crystal clear for me how much easier it is to do basic data manipulations in a mutable fashion than in a immutable fashion and i'm not saying that immutable is bad immutable is great what i'm saying is we don't yet have good natural language syntax for doing it and i think auto merge really helped me realize that and this is again like another reason that elm might be great because it's sort of built in there so that's what that's what I have to say about immutable at the moment. Sounds like nobody has anything really to
0: add. I mean, it, you've pretty much summed up my experience with it. So.
3: Yeah. It was a really weird concept for me when I first encountered it. Of course I encountered it easily 15 years into my career when I, or, or 12 or so, so I already had a lot of thoughts when I first encountered the concept of immutability and immutable data structures. I was just like, this is stupid. Why would I make a copy of some huge <laughs> structure just because I wanted to change the first name of this random, you know, one of 500 data points in the whole structure? Why would I create a whole copy, a new copy of that? But uh, when you actually see the performance benefits laid out, whether whether, it's, it's one of those great examples of many things in life that is unintuitive But it's irrefutable when you just get a reasonable amount of data in front of you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for those of us who started our programming career in C, for example, where we actually had to manage our own memory, it does seem absolutely insane. But once you get used to it, it's great. Yeah, well, I think
0: think to uh, Joe's point as well, um, when I first came across immutability, I mean, I took a class in college and I think we went over it really briefly, but um, it wasn't just, this is a really dumb way of doing this, but they were always trivial examples too. And so there was not a whole lot of downside to doing it the normal way. And so it's, it's once you really see, oh, I'm doing all of these operations and Hey, look, my memory doesn't go through the roof. Th- that's where it pays off. That's where you're really seeing it and going, Oh, Okay. I kind of get it now and even if you don't completely understand why it's saving you effort in memory management and things like that you know you try it out and you try it out on a, on a real scale and then you really understand just from watching what it does you can say oh okay I at least see the payoff even if I don't understand how it works
2: absolutely
1: Even apart from that I think again just going back to like It being a functional concept and making things more testable and more explicit Mm -hmm. and being able to clearly separate things makes working in code day-to-day usually a much more pleasant experience. Well said, Amy. (laughs) As I'm working in a system that is (laughs) not a super pleasant experience. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
0: It's called legacy code. It means it's at least a week old.
1: I, I had this <laughs> conversation actually with our PM this morning and what is actually the equivalent to a year? What is a code year in, in normal time? Because Seven. what exactly right constitutes a legacy application is it? Three years old? Is it four years the, old? In, in all seriousness,
3: the time warp is seven times. It's that's a really, really, really good rule of thumb. I've seen it published seven? in a lot of different places. Okay. So, uh, if your code is seven, is a, if your code's a year old, you can act as if it's a product that's actually seven years old and hasn't been touched or you know updated in seven years.
1: That makes sense. I mean, I'm really not saying this from like a trolling. I'm I'm, try, I'm not trolling or anything. It was a very serious conversation that I was having with them this morning. So.
3: Right. right. No, okay. the same thing like, sorry. Okay. I was going to say the same thing goes for like if I buy a computer and it's a year old, it's like driving a car that's seven years old. Yeah. yeah all right. Yeah. So if my computer's five years old, <laughs> it's a 35-year-old right. car. Yep.
0: Michael Feather says that uh, legacy code is any code that exists without
3: tests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think legacy code is one of those weird things. I'd say it's any legacy codes, any code you're afraid of.
2: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I like that definition.
0: Well, and all of these things tie in, right? I mean, if it's old code, that nobody around you has written, then you don't even have access to the brain that generated it. If it doesn't have tests, then then you you know you should be afraid, right? Especially if it's complicated, because again, you don't have any guarantees, and so it's it's all of these things that play into it. And and I really like the idea, even though it's imprecise, that yeah, it's code that you're afraid of.
3: Yeah, there's a really great uh, Dilbert series of cartoons about uh, somebody writing a really horrible system of spaghetti code and it was their retirement plan because the company could never fire them. <laughs> <That's about right. laughs> it was something mission critical and they'd written it terribly and nobody wanted to touch it. So the company had to keep employing that person. <laughs> kind, of, kind of interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like I've seen plenty of examples of stuff where when I'm writing it and I'm in the middle of it, I know it really well and it's great. And then I come back to it later on. I was like, oh, that's a terrible legacy code. Right. But I yeah. think there's a really great quote I heard a little while ago that's very applicable to this, and that is, if you're not embarrassed of who you are six months ago, then you're not growing enough.
1: That is so true.
3: Great,
0: great quote. Oh. Yeah, my, my version of that, because I, I don't really feel shame over the code that I wrote a while back, but I definitely look at it and say, I wish I knew then what I know now. Mm. Yep. So I, I'm going to push us on to the next point in this article, mainly because this is another one that I was really curious about. And I see this structure coming up It's the one-way data binding, you know, and you mentioned Flux and Redux and, you know, Angular has um, its one-way data binding now. But a lot of this came out of stuff around um, both data stores and around things like Shadow DOMs and things like that. So there's a lot of other stuff that tied together with that. And so I'm wondering, how do you tease this out from the other crazy stuff that came out around the same time?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's tough. It's a big, there's been a big explosion. And obviously, you know, MobX and now MobX Tree are also providing a variation on that pattern, which is a lot less like one way data binding and a lot more like View, where it's, It's really one way, my understanding is it's really one way data binding, but it makes it seem like it's two way. So I guess, you know, there is part of me that, you know, remembers my view days and thinks, oh, actually two way is really nice. It's really nice. You know, if, if I need to update something, I'll just update. I'll update wherever I am. It's fine. And, you know, let the infrastructure figure out what that means and where that needs to be changed. And I think in an ideal world, maybe that would be better. But what I really have loved about Redux, and I'm I'm still stuck on Redux. I haven't adopted or switched over to MobX, and I don't think I'm going to, is the way it does encourage you to think uh, what I call whole application thinking. So, you know, we've got a... a big applica- a big single page application with a lot of functionality and a lot of different areas and a lot of pages. And if I make a if I am writing a reducer that's going to make a change to state, it sort of forces me to think about the whole application. And while that may seem crazy making as in as in a bad thing, as in it breaks your capability to reason about smaller chunks it doesn't do so in a way that i have to like keep all the details about the whole application in my head i just have to say all right you know i'm looking through this state tree and i'm finding this thing in the state tree and i want to change it in this reducer and it it makes me it forces me to understand the structure of the entire state tree and that i think is a good thing that has helped me and my developers be a little more aware of, of how how the application sort of hangs together and, and interrelates. And so that's, that's really been the win for one-way data binding for me.
3: I will say that when I first encountered Angular and had that little AngularJS, the old version that had two-way data binding and had that little demo where you put the form on the field and you two-way data bind it and then you type right. and it shows up in the binding underneath in the H1 tag and you're just like... <gasps> Of <laughs> course, you know, if, if you started programming a few years ago and you came up with frameworks, you probably don't have that opportunity to have that same experience of like been doing something in the web, the crummy, sucky way forever. Then somebody comes out with this, look at what I did. And you're just like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And it wasn't until later on that we realized, well, it, it also caused some performance issues, but man, it was a genius at the time. Yeah. Yep. All right.
0: Well, Amy, do you want to give us your picks real quick? And then um, we can either keep talking or wrap up.
1: Yes. So I have one that I've been saving for a while because I was act, like hilarious. Good April Fool's joke. Maybe. Uh, so everyone's heard of prettier. Uh, this is something called pettier. So it's uh, basically the same thing, but it's going to like arbitrary. so the read me says, uh, prettier config that randomizes options and arbitrarily switches between spaces and tabs. So I thought that was pretty funny. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And worth a pick because, you know, you got to keep things lighthearted sometimes because things get serious and yeah, it's good stuff. (laughs) And that's it for me. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to jump off. So bye guys. Sorry. I have to run.
0: Thank you. Toodles. Bye. All right. Well, uh, do we want to keep going? I'm happy to keep talking. I just didn't want to dominate the conversation. No, it's fine. It's definitely been fun to just dive into these and say, you know, what about this or, you know, express difference of opinion. And I think that's the other thing is if you talk to a bunch of people, you're probably going to hit several of these, um, but they may have different Mm -hmm. opinions about some of this stuff.
3: Absolutely. I would like to talk about that last item, the computer property names and property shorthand. I think that 's worth covering because that 's probably a topic that there's a reasonable number of listeners who are not necessarily aware of uh, what it is and might, might be interested to check it out based on what they hear today.
2: I think this is something that's sort of difficult to explain uh
3: verbally. Um, I also think it's interesting that of all the things that you listed that 's the only this is the one that 's like a little tiny bit of code can explain it. Everything else is really big concepts, right? right? right. Paradigm, uh, architectural concepts. This is the one thing you listed that was actually like, here's a specific technique in code, you know, some ES6 feature essentially, right? Why, did, why was that the one that made your <laughs> list that's like that where everything else was something big? Sure.
2: Uh, That's the one that that got got on there because it's the one that I didn't see enough people using. Like I was looking at people's code. I was looking at, you know, source code of NPM packages. I was looking at the, the code my developers were doing. And so many times I had this experience of your code could be simpler and easier to read if you're using computed property names and I just don't think you're aware of it. So it sort of got on there just because I didn't think people were using it enough. Um, and I've really been enmeshed in my project for the last few months. So I don't know if in, in the last few months like everybody's gotten the memo and, and now it's everyone's favorite thing. Uh, uh, but I, I hope I did a little part in, in getting people to realize the, the expressive power of that. Right. And uh, I'm going to attempt <laughs> to
3: describe this. <laughs> Please do. So yeah, we need a little explanation.
0: Yeah, so essentially what, what we're seeing here is that uh, you have um, objects, and you, when you create the object, so he has a const name, and the value is, and forgive me because I haven't watched or read Game of Thrones, so I'm probably going to slaughter this name. but uh, Daenerys. Daenerys, yeah, that's right. And then um, below that, there's another... It's a string. It's a string, right. It's a string. And yeah, it's just a a constant name. And then you've got another const chars or characters. Um, And in this case, I guess it's movie characters or TV characters. And it's an object. And then you've got square braces around name. And then it, it takes another object or name colon, and then, yeah, anyway, you, you you can go look it up. We'll have a link in the show notes. But, yeah, so I'm guessing then that it assigns the name as, you know, the, the string name, which is Daenerys, and then it, you know, assigns the role as just the uh, static string that you have there.
2: Right. It, it, it essentially is a way to dynamically name properties in a literal object. So when we say object literal, you know, it's, it's not an object that someone gave you in a variable. It's an object literal that you're creating with your curly brackets. And normally, we, you know, what we put before the colon is the name and the name is literally the name that you see. But if you put square brackets around it, it's going to interpolate that. So if it's a variable, it'll say, oh, what is the string value of this variable? And it has all kinds of nice implications for dynamically constructing objects. So, for example, if you need to construct an object with some property names that you don't necessarily know at design time, it's something that's provided by the user or provided by an algorithm or coming from a different project, you can dynamically create those in a really compact way. And again, it is, it is hard to explain verbally, so I, I would recommend looking up computed property names.
3: Right. Yeah, uh, I think it's important for the readers, even though you're, you're just going to have such a hard time just trying to listen to this to get this, but what we're talking about yeah. is like when you say name is a name-value pair, right? The name is the part before the colon, the value is the part after the colon, and that gives this... Computer property names gives you the opportunity to make the name, the part before the colon, be derived by something at runtime rather than at design time. And when you see the code example, what's great about this article, this is an article everybody who hasn't checked it out should definitely check out because it's a super short read, right? Um, Especially if you skip your preamble (laughs) and just get right into the list because each list item is like (laughs) a paragraph you know, four, four sentences, really good, ex, really good explanation and t- and talk about each thing and why it's important. And then again, there's just that, that one last thing is the only piece of code. So it's a quick read. It's a, it's a great thing to check over. And, um, just seeing that code is like a really nice reminder of, Oh yeah, I, I can really do this stuff. And, um, you know, this really comes in handy if you want to use an object as a, you know, like a map or a name a list of name values, uh, as a collection, right? An object as a collection, and not just as uh, you know a thing with a set of properties. Because there's reasons why it's better to have an object be a collection instead of an array. We default to using an array when we're talking about a collection of things, but oftentimes an object is a better structure for a collection mm-hmm. of things. Where it's because it could be a collection of name value pairs. And um, there's a couple of, there's a couple of different uh, terms. Map is one of the uh, data structures that matches this uh thing we don't usually use objects as a map but that is something and and so this is a great a great feature for when you're trying to use an object in that manner and again here that shows my uh my lack of experience with uh data structures and algorithms because there's a name for this kind of data <laughs> structure and i think it's map right yeah uh, i mean I it has all map. Hash, map, hash, map, hash yeah yep. Dictionary, yeah. associative array.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> and there, there are some subtle differences between some of them. And then they just came out with the set, op, the set op, uh, uh, thing in JavaScript. A- A-G, yeah. Has this, again, subtly different as well. But anyway, great article, great read. Uh, this code is uh, pretty, pretty cool, this little part about the computer property names. And I 100% agree this is the kind of thing where it can come in handy and knowing about it being able to use it could be really helpful.
0: Yeah, well, it makes your code concise and you look at it and it's like, okay, I get it. Yeah, totally. Right.
2: Um, and I, I don't want to take too much critical, credit for this article, so I want to give a shout out to Michelle who actually uh, wrote this based on an interview she had with me. So, uh, you know, let, let's give credit where credit is due. She, mm-hmm. She's the one who sort of put it in a in a very digestible format.
3: Yeah, sweet. Sweet. Cool.
2: Yeah, and, and just for uh,
0: the folks who are hearing this, there are also a few things not to worry about. And I don't know if we want to dive into those. We talked a little bit about symbols, um, you know, and, and there are two others here that are, you know, if if you know what they are, it probably doesn't surprise you a whole lot that they're in there. Um, and, you know, specifically with JavaScript, yeah, it just doesn't really, yeah, n- none of these are really kind of the state-of-the-art way of doing things anymore, if they ever were in, in some of these cases, so.
2: Sure. Um, And and I can just, they're they're really simple. So the three things I mentioned was, you know, first was object-oriented programming. OOP paradigms don't play as nicely as you might think in JavaScript. And I think there are a lot of people that are starting to feel that OOP was always a little overhyped in the first place. So I would be looking to different paradigms. Then I talked about generators, and generators were really fantastic for a hot moment with, before we had async and await. Mm-hmm. There are still cases in which they're useful, uh, but they're really, really rare. And I haven't run across one in at least a couple of years, and I, I don't think I can even remember the use case I had for them. So uh, I, I wouldn't worry about generators unless you run across one of those use cases. And then we talked about symbols, and I think I might be relaxing my opinion about that. I think maybe the world is ready for them now. Well, some
0: of these things too, like generators was a spec for a long time. And I think what really happened with what I've seen is that by the time people actually understood generators and were starting to use them, async await had come around. Yeah, exactly. And so it it wasn't necessarily that it was a bad feature or a useless feature. It just took people a while to kind of get into their head what generators did. And by by the time they did, async await was just a better way to do 99% 99% of the things you were doing with generators. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, stuff like that.
2: Sort of the, the one the one thing that as, that generator can still do that async await can't or at least can't elegantly is if you need to essentially create a function that uh, it, that never stops returning values if you need to like say generate fibonacci numbers, you know generator still going to be a good choice for that application because it doesn't have a a in Really, it'll just keep going.
0: Yep. All right. Well, let's, let's go ahead and move off to picks. But before we do that, do you want to just tell people where they can usually find you online?
2: Sure. Uh, the, probably the uh, best, easiest way to reach me is Twitter. So Ethan R. Brown. And yeah, I would say that. And I don't tweet a lot, but I, I pay attention to tweets. So if you tweet at me, I will respond. Awesome. All right. Well, let's do some picks. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean,
0: the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free
3: $100 credit at do.co/jabber. Joe, do you have some picks? Woo, you bet I do uh, I want to pick the book that I mentioned before, Kyle Simpson's book. It's called "A uh, Lean Functional Programming in JavaScript or. Light functional for Light functional. Ah,
0: thanks. Or functional light. I always get the words mixed up, but now You're I can't right remember.
3: there it is. Functional light. Uh, yeah. And since I've confused you five times, you'll probably have a hard time remembering what to Google when you Google it. If you Google functional light, it's like it sh- should come right up. Kyle Simpson, uh, who's Getify, he goes by Getify Online. Anyway, there'll be a link in the show notes as well to the Lean Pub where you can get it. Uh, totally worth your time. And then uh, the other, the other thing I would like to put in. Uh, And pick is Lego is going to come out on October first with a new Lego set, Star Wars Lego set betrayal at Cloud City. (laughs)
2: Looks (laughs) great.
3: Oh yeah, it's one of those sets that has like a gazillion minifigs, which is super cool. It's got uh, a small Slave One, Boba Fett's ship. It's got a small one of those. I have the really really big one, but it's got a small one of those. And then remember the the ships that the the people that. Those, the, they flew those weird red ships that had two pods side by side mm-hmm. that were connected one of those and then of course you know the chamber where Han Solo turned into carbonite and oh my gosh the number of minifigs is just overwhelming there must be 20 or some odd like Leia and Han and Stormtroopers and C-3PO and Lando Vader Boba Fett R2-D2 Luke is probably, she,
2: probably Ugnaughts yeah yep.
3: <laughs> I, yep, uh, according,
2: Ugnaughts. according
0: to uh, comicbook.com it has 18 minifigs in it oh nice
3: yeah, that's just so beautiful. 18 minifigs. <laughs> so, 350 bucks, unfortunately, but I'm still super excited about it. I already ordered my uh, uh, Hogwarts Castle that just came out uh, <laughs> a week ago. I already ordered ordered me that. Should be arriving here soon. <laughs> like the second biggest Lego set ever. The Hogwarts Castle. Super excited. Anyway, those are my picks. That's great.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to decide how sad it is that I can tell you what Joe and my 13-year-old have in common. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think it's a beautiful uh, thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I enjoy this stuff too, so definitely. Um, I've got a few things I'm going to shout out about. Um, I'm not sure if how much I've talked about it because I've talked about different things on different shows, um, but life for me for this last probably since the beginning of the year has really been up and down. Something's really down and something's really, um, you know, it's like, oh, I feel better today. Um, and anyway, I, I've been doing quite a bit better over the last few weeks. Um, the folks that deal with me on a regular basis, Joe's one of those people, you know, probably have a better idea about how that's gone than others. And I actually took June off from recording podcasts because things were so uh, just emotionally hard for me. Um, but over the last week, um, I listened to a couple of books on Audible and they really kind of helped me come around to a few things. And I, 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 guess I have a healthier outlook on a lot of this stuff. Um, I think the biggest thing this year was just my dad passing away in April, but, uh, anyway, Um, so these two books, uh, I listened to on audible really kind of helped me kind of get out of, um, what was left of the funk I was in. Uh, the first one is, um, the traveler's gift by Andy Andrews. Um, and it's a terrific book. Um, basically this guy kind of hits rock bottom and, um, he has this experience where he essentially travels through time and, um, uh, he meets different historical figures and they each give him a lesson, a life lesson. And anyway, really interesting um, these historical figures are at different pivotal times in history, and i'm also gratified to say that, um, as he kind of uh, comes around in each setting, I was able to guess who the historical figure was in all of the ones that had historical figures in, it except one um, so that made me feel good too but anyway, terrific book if you 're looking for kind of a um, i mean it's it's not it 's not buried deep at all you know the he reads the lessons you know out loud as part of the thing but Anyway, uh, terrific book. And then the other one was The Shack, um, and that one's by William Paul Young. And um, on Audible, it actually has a couple of interviews with him where he explains where the book came from and some of the background to it and things like that. But uh, again, you know, it just it's it's a it's this um, hero's journey kind of thing where you know this this person kind of goes through these things to to overcome their own issues. And uh, if you've seen the movie, you kind of get the gist. I really don't want to spoil it for anybody. Um, but yeah, just, just incredible books. So I'm going to pick both of those. Um, and then one last one that I'm going to pick. And I think it, this one was picked on the View podcast. I'm not 100% sure on that because I record like nine podcasts every week. Um, but uh, So it might have been on the Elixir podcast. I'm pretty sure it was on one, one or the other. But uh, I was homesick yesterday uh, from church and stuff. And so I was just flipping through um, Amazon Prime and ran across The Expanse and somebody had picked it on one of the shows and I thought, oh, I'll check it out. And I'm about halfway through the first season, really have been enjoying that. Um, it's, I, I don't know if I would let my kids watch it, not because of any content per se, more that it's just kind of dark settings. And so it gets a little bit intense, but beyond that, it's, it's a really, really good show. I've really been enjoying it. Of course, it, it may change in future seasons, but uh, it sounds like it's still going strong, so. Anyway, those are my picks. Ethan, do you have
2: some picks for us? I do. Uh, and thank you. Uh, tr- uh, is it Charles, do you go by Charles or Chuck? You can call me Chuck. Uh, thanks for those picks, Chuck. And I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about your father. My, my condolences. Um, it's interesting that you, you talked uh, about your emotional state because I was as I was preparing for this podcast this morning, I was uh, sort of in a, in a funk my own self and I've got a lot of things going on in my life. And uh, I, I had to really psych myself up for this. I'm like, oh my God, I hope I can be you know, entertaining and articulate and when I just, you know, Feel like being in bed all day, kind of thing. So, I think it's interesting that in in nerd culture, we don't really talk a whole lot about emotional state and its impact on our work and our lives. Um, so, uh, props to you for bringing that out there. Um, and uh, you're welcome. And um, so, sort of along those lines, uh, it made me think of a pick that I hadn't thought of before. I read a fantastic article in the New York Times recently, uh, titled "Humorously Jocks Rule and Nerds Drool." And it's sort of talking about the, the near flip we've seen in the cultural place of jocks and nerds and that now you know now we're seeing more nerds sexually harassing people and behaving badly and sort of being on top of the social pile. And on the flip side, you have people like LeBron James who are like, hey, I'm going to start a school because I think people should get an education. And I just thought it was a really interesting take on it all and a, sort of a sobering lesson for those of us in the tech community that you know, just because we were picked on in school you know, it doesn't mean we can flip and become the bad guys. We, we, we have a responsibility to be kind and gentle as well. Um, so it was a really great article. Uh, I'm going to post it in the links. And then uh, my uh, other thing, just pile on that one really quickly because I, I completely agree. And we see this in our
0: political discourse as well. Well, they did this thing bad. And so we're going to respond in kind. And absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's an us versus them thing that's not healthy that we see in a lot of debates out there. So if you see somebody as different from you, um, even if they're being a jerk, you know, take a look at yourself and make sure that you're not mirroring what they're doing because it's not going to help.
2: Absolutely. Uh, all right. And on to my nerdier picks. Uh, I, I didn't have uh, time to, to think about some really thoughtful ones. So I'm just going to throw out some old standards for me, some things I, I don't know that uh, get enough recognition. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Axel Rauschmeier, everything he writes about JavaScript is spot on. And I really appreciate his concise, clear and 100% correct explanation of JavaScript. Uh, concepts. So his his blog for me is required reading for JavaScript developers. And then lastly is a, a press called Cooper Press, and they do a lot of weekly uh, newsletters. Uh, they do JavaScript Weekly and Frontend Weekly and Node Weekly and all, all these weeklies are like an email list delivered to your inbox. And I just I just want to give them a shout out because I think they're really well curated, and it's sort of my one stop shopping for you know JavaScript and web development news and Node news and everything. So um, I think you should subscribe to some of their newsletters. Yeah, Peter Cooper, who started Cooper Press. um, He was
0: an original panelist on this show and on Ruby Rogues. Nice. Yeah. I did not
2: know that. I'll have to go back to the archives.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I've known him for years. Terrific guy.
2: Nice. All right. Well, did I ask where we can find you online if we want to? Uh, Yeah, Twitter is the best way. Ethan R. Brown is probably the the easiest way to touch with me. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming, Ethan. Thank you for having me. All right, we'll uh, wrap this one up, folks, and we will
0: uh, have another episode next week. All right, thanks, thanks, Doc. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.